All right, we're now on record. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our CAB meeting, June 9th. Um, we will begin our meeting at 5.36. Um, can we do roll call, please? Is Brenda on? Or I can call it. Brenda, go ahead and mute your mic. Hello? I'm sorry. Hi. This is Brenda. Can you hear me? Yes. I'm I'm sorry. Um Lucia Angel? Present. Neha Banger? Present. B Frank Walker? Present. Witcher Harvey? Loretta Mellon? Loretta Mellon? Present. Eric Murphy? I'm here. Mark Smith? Here. Derek So? Present. Ali Yessing? Present. We have a quorum? Great, thank you. Sorry, let me open my notes. Um, okay, thank you, Brenda. Um, <clears throat> so, board chair report. Um, I think, actually, I just wanted to acknowledge that this last few weeks um, have been uh, pretty challenging for um, this country, for a lot of us, um, a lot of emotion um that we might all be going through um and i think i just want to acknowledge um you know the the movement that's going on right now with black lives matter um and kind of how us as a board um you know we're part of participating in that movement um uh through um Healthcare for the homeless, um, and just wanted to keep that in mind uh, as kind of we move forward, and how that affects the work that we're doing and our mission and what we want to accomplish. Um, and then just for us to remind ourselves to take some time to do some self care um, as we, you know, go on and participate in the various forms of activism that we all participate up on, yeah. on our own in our own time. Um, so, um, I'm here if anyone needs to talk or wants to check in. Um, so, um, yeah, that's all. Um, just want to mention that. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Lucia. And then for our, uh, moving on to our agenda, so consent agenda. Um, uh, so we want to, unless there is objections, um, we move forward to approving the minutes from May 12th, last month's meeting. Can I get a motion to approve those meetings, minutes? Make a motion to approve the minutes of the last CAB meeting. I second it. 
So motion approved. Uh, meeting uh, approved. Thank you all. Um, and then we'll move to our next item. Um, so we have our um, director report with Damien. Thanks so much. Um, thanks for you know opening and just acknowledging what's going on too. I think uh, we included in the board packet um, just a statement from Del Vecchio, our CEO, a statement from our ambulatory um, leadership team, which you know manages the, the all of the ambulatory care system that that our homeless health centers embedded within. And um, I think the sentiments you express, um, Lucia, are just you know um, everywhere around us in the organization and. There's a real diversity, I think, of responses, um, you know, emotionally, of um, understandings of, of what it means for our work. Um, I started getting, you know, a bunch of text messages from people, and um, I, I've been lately in the middle of trying to figure out how to work with our public health department around um, COVID disparities um, and really sensing the connection uh, between disparities that affect African Americans and disparities that are affecting, um, in particular, indigenous Latin Americans who um, speak languages, uh, particularly mom, that are really hard to access interpreter services for, really hard to access cross-cultural um, case management and support services for, you know, really hard to access just conventional economic supports because of immigration status for, uh, we have a very high test positivity right here at Alameda Health System. Um, I, I'm still taking referrals for Operation Comfort. So I had one family of seven that lived in a garage with a converted, um, uh, basically like water outlet pipe that they've turned into a bathroom and a kitchen in that garage. And they had a five, five day old living there and the entire family was positive for coronavirus. And we referred yeah. them to one of our shelters, uh, one of our new Motels, and they were able to stay for a few hours, and just really couldn't couldn't figure out a way to make it work there. Um, and so it was there was this disconnect for me um, in sort of the abstractness of like the protests and um, and um, and the like, just like the you know think the, the all the calls back and forth with that family on how to speak to them in a language that they spoke in get them what they needed and, you know, just kind of utterly failing at that. Um, and it felt somehow more important in this moment than it did, you know, that, that, that lack of success felt on somehow more important and more affecting in this moment than, and more, and really deeply connected to what's happening with the police to me. Um, but really hard to narrate to my friends in other places to say like, this is so much the same thing guys. Um, so I just really appreciate you kind of acknowledging that and where we all are and, um, and, uh, and and also appreciate knowing that, you know, that's um, so much of what um, what the, the members of this board focus on all the time. Um, so I wanted to talk uh, today just about uh, some of what we see happening with the population of people who live in, um, in homeless shelters um, and what, how that's changing the way we're having to think about um, the mobile health program that we oversee, but also the connections to our entire ambulatory care system and then some of our care management resources that, uh, as well and some of the 
changes that we've already made and then just orient you to some of the things we're thinking about that will definitely come back to you, you know, over time as, um, as you know, the response to COVID continues and, um, and as these changes continue. Um, so I just, I kind of wrote the storyline out in the titles of the um, slides, but I'll walk you through them and um, please feel free to interrupt with, uh, with questions if, um, if something doesn't make sense or if you have a clarifying question along the way. Um, so just starting out with the data from our 2019 um, homeless count, um, which told us that there were about 1,700 people that we could count that were residing in um, shelters in Alameda County at the time, about 20% of the overall HUD homeless population. Um, as you all know, this is a much narrower population than the people who are defined as homeless for our purposes. Um, but we do have, you know, the mobile health program that is, um, although we see some people who are in the unsheltered population and drop-in settings, it is very much coordinated with the, the focus on the shelter population um, in our county. So you can go to the next slide. So among those 1,700 people, um, we don't really have a breakdown specifically for them of health-related issues. Um, but um, the breakdown across the entire population likely applies to them. Um, and, you know, you can see just a really, really high burden of um, multiple different chronic illnesses, a really high burden of disabling conditions in that population that, um, you know, are, are responsive to primary care, require primary care, um, that require connections to, to healthcare ongoing and, and highly accessible and low barrier um, care. And so what's happened with um, the coronavirus is um, probably that population is bigger even by a HUD definition than 1,700. You know, if we just extrapolate the trajectory from 2017 to 2019 to now, we're probably up over 2,000 people. Um, probably that number is an undercount just of the HUD population. Um, but a, a fairly large portion of folks who've been living in shelters who have serious illnesses, and I, you don't have to read any of these things, but just to give you a, a sense of the kinds of severity of the illnesses that, that folks have um, living in the shelter population, um, have moved you know, to um, these three hotels, Safer Ground, which is the um, county managed hotel. There's one in Oakland, there's one in Alameda, and then there's this um, trailer um, group of trailers that the city of Oakland set up called Home Base that use the same target population here. Some folks have moved from the streets, um, but the bulk of these folks have moved from shelters. So all of a sudden we're concentrating a large proportion of the folks who are on that list of people who have really serious illnesses in just a few places. And that's really changed the situation for us on the mobile health band. So you can go to the next slide. What's really um, interesting about this population to me is um, most people, and not just not just like just over 50%, but really on the order of like 75, 80%, have 90% uh, have insurance um, based on the analysis of just the safer ground Oakland population, and 75% have um, primary care, either with Alameda Health System or with another community health center um, in our area, or in some cases with, with private providers in the area. Um, and so these are folks who, um, you know, nominally and in our data have access to healthcare um, through, through um, both being insured and through having primary care providers. 
Um, and so as a result of this kind of concentration of people in um, just a few places, you know, that's really changed what it is. We've talked about this a little bit in this meeting in the past couple months. Um, it's really changed for our mobile health program where we need to be. If many of the folks who are sicker are in a few places um, and those folks need better primary care, better connections to primary care than they have, then it makes sense that our van would follow them. So we've, we've actually, there's not any other place that we've gone to more than twice a month pre- prior to um, prior to the coronavirus um, pandemic. But now we're going to safer ground weekly, and then we're also going to the isolation hotels, which I haven't talked about so far, the ones that are um, for people who are actually experiencing symptoms of COVID. We're going there weekly as well. So both in both ways, it's really dramatically shifted, both to deal with COVID directly and then also to deal with um, the folks who are getting concentrated to be pulled away from, you know, risk for COVID in these hotels. It's really shifted where we're going at the mobile health team. And then our care management team um, has started consolidating a referral process because, um, as you can imagine, Alameda Health System is one of the places in the county where we can identify folks who are at higher risk of complications of COVID and who would benefit from um, these housing resources. And so we've needed to kind of quickly cobble together some processes for our care management team to make referrals into these um, into these hotels. But I think beyond those, you know, short-term adaptations that we've made, now we've started to come up against some of these questions to think about for the future um, that I really just wanted to lay out for you today um, and, and so that you know that you could start thinking about them. We'll come back to these, I think, with more discussions as we have some decisions to make as an organization in the future. Um, but um, among the challenges, um, we've been pretty successful with primary care linkage. You can see folks are mostly um, assigned. They mostly have existing primary care providers um, or, um, you know, they, they at least have insurance. And if they don't like the primary care provider they've, they've been assigned to, we've been able to connect them. So the first day we went to safer ground, I think we saw 10 or 11 visits in a half day, which is really a lot of people to see in a, in a one um a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness who have chronic disabilities when you're using just a single exam room um, in four hours, it's a lot, a lot of people to see. Now we're, um, you know, more typically seeing just two or three people. And those two or three folks, um, like the last two weeks, they've been people that we really need to see. And it's, it's taken me, I've been the, the clinician on the van, um, it's taken me, you know, an hour in, in a couple of those cases to just even get through one visit with someone I mean, one gentleman, an example, is he had really serious dementia, no no connection to any relatives at all, had just come up from San Diego. And it's really unclear that he even has capacity to make his own medical decisions about his own placement. Um, and so you can imagine establishing primary care for him would be quite a bit of a challenge. Um, and there's just a lot of work to say to, you know, capture his full story through talking to four or five people who've been providing case management services to him through the records of, he had had two recent hospitalizations in our system. Um, but that's more of what we're doing now is these more almost case management oriented work versus urgent care services that we can deliver really quickly or quick linkages to care. It's more of these involved linkages to care um, that are the places where our services sort of matter most. And then in a lot of other cases now, people are calling their primary care doctor as the systems open up they're actually able to even come in for visits in some cases um because they, we've connected them and that we've done our job in the first visit so now that we don't have a high visit volume which 
you know, makes um, at least a revenue challenge for us, right? We we build based on business. We don't build based on, you know, linkages to primary care. Um, and um, and then also I think create the challenge of thinking through where is it should we, that we should be. Um, and then I think the other challenge for us thinking about going forward is, you know, with just a single mobile health ban, 1,100 of these households that have at least one member who is over 60 with chronic illnesses at six anticipated sites around the county with weekly visits, you know, it's just, it's too much of a volume to think about handling. And, you know, the, and the, the model for ma- managing that may not be driving around to provide urgent care visits. Um, so I think both of these kind of factors are big challenges to the model for mobile health right now and may, um, and may drive us to, you know, think through other, other ways of, responding to what's happened um, in terms of concentrating people with a lot of illness in, the, in a few small places. I think there's some big opportunities for us as well. Uh, I think we've had we've had some referral processes. It's not really our first referral processes for housing resources within primary care, but um, most mostly we sort of send people back to care management and now we have our chronic care management team um, along with myself that are managing centralized referrals to some of these hotel resources. And that is an opportunity. I'm getting calls from primary care providers throughout the week saying, I have a patient who's homeless. Is this right? And, you know, three out of five times, it's really not, not related to COVID at all, but they've heard about housing and they're calling to ask. And I always give like really positive reinforcement on that. Like, that's great that you're thinking about this. Here's the other resource you should go to. Um, but we've started really building these workflows and people are thinking about housing more in the work that they do every day. And I think that represents a really great opportunity for us to start building on some ambulatory care processes across our entire system, you know, outside of just the mobile health program, but just for your average doctors out there in our clinics, thinking through how do I, how do I assess the housing situation of this patient in front of me and what do I do about it? And then I think the other opportunity is that um, these hotels they're providing a really solid foundation for development of permanent supportive housing and medical respite because we have services that are aggregated in one place for folks who are um, chronically ill, who have disabilities, um, and we have a lot of providers that are partnering in those locations. I think there's a lot of opportunity to um, develop new approaches um, to care that um, you know that are that are um, that are cutting edge. You know. Um, Things like medically assisted treatment for substance use, for example, which has really taken off within um, within the safer ground Oakland site. Um, you know, we're able to think through what these might look like if they evolve toward permanent supportive housing models, and maybe people staying full time in hotels—not necessarily these hotels, but hotels like these. What does it look like to create a rich service environment around those folks that can support people who have pretty serious disabilities? What does it look like to have medical respite, you know, facilities for people who are on their way to another permanent solution, but may need quite a bit of recuperation and not necessarily qualify for um, for a hospital, you know, hospital-based setting. Um, so I think it's it's a really challenging time for us. It's a really exciting time for us to be able to kind of think about what these what this massive shift and where people are um, means for our program. I think um, outside of just thinking about shelter health, you know, there's been um, obviously a huge you know, new unemployment, a huge hit to our economy. And so I think the other variable um, that isn't in this presentation that's going to be really important to our planning processes is, you know, what's happening with newly homeless people um, as a result of the, these massive shifts in our economy. Um, and, you know, are we, are we going to see another, um, 
you know, massive increase in homelessness as we as we have now for the last um, you know five to ten years in the Bay Area, and what will that then mean for the for the service delivery model for um, for us? Um, so yeah, I just wanted to really let you know what we're thinking. I didn't necessarily um, I'm open to you know any questions that that folks have, and um, and we don't necessarily have to achieve any closure in the conversation. I just wanted to open things up really to be able to bring bring ideas back and kind of set the foundation for future discussion. Thanks for sharing, Dr. Francis. I have a couple of questions, more sort of discussion and where we can plug in. Uh, one is question around the homeless count. And so this is the count for 2019. And then do you anticipate that we will be able to get a count for 2020 if this was collected in January and that's when things were really starting to to take shape for COVID, uh, will we be able to get a count for this year? The counts are done um, every two years across the country. Okay. Um, the, so in, in odd numbered years um, during the last week of January, typically across the country, we may have challenges getting a count even in January, 2021, depending upon what's happening with the pandemic at that time. It does you know, require training a lot of people. Um, it's several hundred volunteers usually who are going out um, and so uh, it may be difficult to use okay. the same methods that we've used in the past. Okay. And my other question, my last question was around, you brought up the, the um, possibly a policy window that we have in, in creating permanent supportive housing. And I'm wondering if, if we can do anything to move that agenda forward uh, as a group. And, and because I think that really is something that's required and if there's anything that we can do to, to make that happen or to move the needle on that issue. That's a great question. I've been approaching it from the frame of um, really trying to use the connection to primary care as a way of actually knowing where these facilities are being developed. Um, there's a lot of development happening now within the cities that's not um, uh, I, I at least haven't gotten the same level of communication that I've gotten from the county on like what the city of Alameda is doing, what the city of Newark is doing, what the city of Hayward and Albany are doing. Um, and I think it will be really important to monitor who's developing what interim resources around COVID, you know, what funding sources are they using to do that? And, and then what sorts of supports are they trying to put in place for people so that um, it's a pathway to a permanent situation. Um, and one of the reasons I think, you know, advocating for primary care works is because it's a permanent resource. So it's a way, it's a way of establishing a foundation for people to live that a life that's grounded in permanency, right? Like I have this primary care provider when my housing situation changes, I'll continue to have that primary care provider. And so I, I try to figure out angles to sort of, you know, assess primary care, assess permanent, it's a way of assessing sort of permanency in the community, right? And I think if we can advocate for people to be connected, um, it provides a platform then for saying, we know who the population are, we know what kind of clinical needs they have, and we know what it takes to then develop permanent supportive housing for them. We also know what the downsides are of not developing permanent supportive housing. Um, so I think, um, 
one of the things I'm going to try to do is continue to pull more data from Care Connect and others to figure out what more can we say about the population of folks living in the hotels that makes the case compelling to say, okay, we, we need to find resources elsewhere to, con- to make sure that people move toward permanency and these, you know, from these arrangements that they're in right now. And I'll, I'll of course, enlist your support in that. Any ideas you all have, please, like, share them with me because um, it's a big part of my agenda, too. The platform we have is the healthcare platform to you. Great. Thank you. Very. Dr. Francis, I have yeah. a question. Where are, where are, can we have, uh, I think Derek got a question, too. Okay. You want Derek to go first? Yeah, Derek and then B, please. Okay. Uh, Dr. Francis, uh, just wanted to let you know, um, I know of a project that is uh, currently underway with Alameda County. Uh, I'm uh, kind of behind that project with the uh, supervisors, Nate Miley, Wilma Chan, and uh, Keith Carson. It's a 100-hole, tiny home village, which will be sanctioned. And so I would love to have the opportunity you and I sit down and we can incorporate uh, a healthcare uh, uh, model into that uh, platform because this is for the homeless folks. This is the next step. That would be great. Yeah, I, ha- I haven't yet heard anything about that project, so I'll definitely, I would definitely love to connect with you about it, and um, and then also obviously my colleagues in the county. My question is primarily where are the hotels located for the homeless? So the first hotels that were developed are on a strip uh, near the Oakland airport, right off Hagenberger. Um, There are three hotels all next to each other. One which houses the, the population that I was mostly focused on in the presentation of people who would be at high risk of a medical complication of coronavirus. Um, most of whom are elderly, disabled, um, with chronic illnesses. Um, then the other two hotels on that strip are um, for people who either um, are suspected to have coronavirus, have tested positive for coronavirus, or have been exposed to some with coronavirus. So it's really to help those folks recover without having the chance of infecting anyone else. Now there are new hotels that have been developed, one in Alameda, um, one just came online in Newark um, that meet the safer ground model. That's actually four now, so even since this presentation, since I put this presentation together last week. Um, and then there, um, there are other. Um, there's at least one more hotel in the other model, which is for people to isolate or quarantine. That's also coming online. And then there are a number of scattered site. Uh, sorry. Um, home base is um, City of Oakland developed. Derek, I don't. You probably know where that one is. I can't remember where it's physically located. Yeah, that one is at 633 B. Road. I uh, have a, quite a few uh, people that are embedded in that program. So that one, that one's on Hagenberger as well. And then there are cities that are developing what's called scattered site housing. So they're putting people up in hotels that may, where the whole hotel may not necessarily be um, taken over in a single, you know, master lease or by purchasing the hotel for, you know, people in the population. It may be that the city is just renting a few rooms. Um, Alameda has also developed a few trailers that I'm aware of, but those are more scattered and we don't know as much about them. And I think there's an opportunity there to 
pull more cities and more communities into the conversation about um, what what does it mean if you want to provide permanency to people? What does that mean around primary care, around connections to other um, to other services and supports? Um, and how can we make sure that you know we're we're being thoughtful around um, getting the the most resources that's possible for for this population? Thank you. Are there any other questions? Okay, thank you, Dr. Francis. Um, so we'll move on to our next agenda item. Um, so this is our um, report or project, sorry, program report from Heather. Hi, thanks so much. Um, you know, it's interesting, things change very quickly, so I'm gonna acknowledge that in this report, it's already a little out of date. So I'm gonna update you on um, some things that happened after the writing of the report. So we always check in on our health center um, compliance, and we still have no um, compliance findings. Um, the addition to this would be that we did get our last report from Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program just last week as well. So we've received the report from the most recent visit and there continued to be no findings. So um, we will be having another site visit coming up soon. It was delayed because of COVID and so that's still being scheduled out. Um, for mobile health, we completed 88 clinical encounters and 130 enabling patient encounters. And just a reminder, the clinical encounter is one with the nurse practitioner or provider. So either with this month it was with Dr. Francis or with Meg Moser. Um, Meg Moser is a nurse practitioner who filled in while Wanda is away. So we were really happy to have her and uh, the team you know, with every new provider, they learn new things and get new energy. And I think it was really inspiring um, to have another person and a new set of eyes in our clinic and it helps to challenge our, our staff. So we were happy for that. Um, the enabling services are those services that are non-clinical. So sometimes they're the linkages. So it's the phone call that helps link a patient to primary care or it's um, something that we've given the patient, it's a hygiene kit that we've provided, or some other resource or referral. And so frequently we're providing enabling services to patients that are not also having a clinical encounter. So that's why you'll see the enabling patient number higher. Um, if our, our mobile health specialists are providing more than one service to a patient, it's still counted as one encounter if it's happening on that day. Um, and so this does represent just a, a large number of patients that they might be seeing and interacting with that uh, are not necessarily having clinical visits that day. Sometimes it's a follow-up um, because they're doing continued work with a patient after the clinician visit, or sometimes it's also doing work prior to the clinician visit and then also on the day that the provider is there. So that's also how that number gets to be a little bit higher. Um, so another update, you know, we've been having a lot of trouble with submitting our data to the county um, for a number of reasons. Our EPIC system is very complex and uh, we did recently submit the data and also since the writing of this report, it got soundly rejected, which is totally fine in that um, we're hoping that it'll be fixed by the end of this month. Um, they helped us to 
um, identify some areas where it still wasn't meeting expectations, um, some of which we did already know about. So for example, um, we've been struggling with, there's an area called um, source of income and the way that it's built in Epic just made it very difficult for them to get that information to flow into the report and they had to figure that out. And they did figure that out and we're expecting that that will go live by the end of next week. Um, the other issue that we're having was around diagnosis codes. Um, and just to explain briefly what that was, when, when I'm in Epic, they give me lots of fields where I can choose various information that has names and titles. And so uh, in the report that I build, I look for diagnosis codes. And you can imagine once you get into the Epic reporting, you look for diagnosis codes and it'll give me 12 to 15 different ways that it can give me diagnosis codes. So I did pull all of those and um, thought that I had the right information um, because th that was all of the opp opportunities I had. So there weren't any other additional diagnosis codes in my library. So it kind of, it's like going to the library. The library says you have this many books on the shelf. I say, okay, I'll take these books. Please give me the information. And it gave them all back. And by looking at the data, I was reasonably confident that I was looking in the right place, even though some of the information was blank. So then we had to figure out, well, why is some of this information blank? Um, and ultimately what we were able to determine is the library that I was looking in wasn't, the, wasn't adequate. I needed a bigger library. And so they had to build me a library for the information that I specifically wanted. What I wanted wasn't available in the regular library. So they had to, they had to change the formatting on the back end so I could ask for the information that I wanted in the way that I wanted it. And they're expecting again that that will be available by the end of next week also. Um, part of the delay then in getting it turned around right away was also that we just did an upgrade that I think we mentioned um, before where the screening, the Children's Health Watch screening for risk of homelessness is going live along with a lot of other things that are going live in this upgrade that goes into effect tomorrow. And so there was a limit to the IT team helping me, for example, build my new library until after they had the upgrade work finished. And so, um, but they did do some prep work because we had identified the problem and um, they've sampled it, they've tested it, and we're expecting, like I said, by, by late next week that it should be live. Um, what happens though once, so, you know, when you think you have the right information and then you create the report and then you send the report and somebody else looks at it and they say, no, you got to go back to the go back and try again. Um, that just is a back and forth that takes a little bit of time. So that's also part of the delay. But I am thoroughly confident that, you know, we will soon have a report that I'll be able to run with regularity that will meet all of the requirements. Um, the next set of work that we'll have after we have the ability to pull the data and have it accurately reflect what's in the system is improving what's in the system. Um, because we have enough information to know that some of what's um, being entered into the system isn't enough. So for example, the financial information for patients is not um, consistently entered into the system for every single patient that's identified as homeless. And so that is a, an area of improvement that we'll get to work on once we have the ability to pull the data correctly. Um, so if you can scroll down just a little bit so folks can see the screen. Thank you so much, Alexander. Um, you had heard from Damon that um, we had messages from our leaders um, that came this week. And so we have attached them here. 
We have one from our CEO, um, one from our um, leadership group from ambulatory care. I think they both gave very strong and powerful messages. And some of what's happening within our, within our agency now is really coming up with um, how might Alameda Health System do better to make reality um, a better system of care in relationship to the current events. Um, I don't really have an answer for that, but it's these are the questions that we're asking. How can we do better? Where do we see evidence of continued um, marginalization of our communities, even within our health system? Um, and what can we do about that? And certainly the work that we do within our within the CAB and within this program is important, but there's a larger organization that has some work to do as well. And so we're looking at identifying where there's opportunities for that. In addition, um, our mobile health team was featured on our intranet. We had done a story, and I think we talked a little bit about um, this the last time we met, that we were preparing this story, and it went live. And so you can see a picture of Dr. Francis. He's the one with the yellow, the yellow gown and special hat. And he's there with, with Lafayette, who is uh, our mobile health specialist, um, helping out. And this was, I want to say, one of the very first days they went out to do testing. And I made them take lots of pictures. Um, so it was the first time that they went out to Operation Comfort to do testing. And so it's a little story of just their experience um, of doing testing and also just being in this time of COVID and how that impacted them and how they experienced fear and overcoming that fear and finding a place of comfort. So if you haven't read it already, I encourage you to do so. That's the end of my report. Does anybody have any questions? I will be providing this report to the commission. So we've figured out kind of our standards. And so the commission meets uh, uh, next Friday and they'll get the same report. I'll probably update it just to reflect some of the information that I provided to you today to um, further just the idea that yes, it was rejected, we're fixing it and things like that. So they'll get the, they'll get the corrected edition, not just that it was submitted, but that it was submitted and failed the test. item on our agenda um, is a follow-up from last meeting. So our CAB correspondence to the Alameda Health System or Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Commission. Um, so we need a motion to approve and authorize the CAB correspondence um, to the Alameda, Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Commission. I get a motion. I motion to approve the CAB correspondence for open today. Discussion. Yes. I second. Thank you. Um, so we can open discussion now. So I, um, I was able to draft a letter uh, since last meeting, and um, with some feedback. 
baby. <laughs> With some feedback um, from Heather and team. Um, should we <clears throat> go ahead and read it? Is everyone on here? Wait, what page? I'm sorry. <clears throat> What page? The last page of the packet. If you're looking at the packet, it's the last page, I believe. Oh, okay. Okay, got it. Um, do you want to take a moment, or if people have had a chance to read it, any feedback? I think uh, it's a great letter, great job, team. Uh, in putting it together, I think it looks really good. It's it's a good mix of you know getting your point across, but being very elegant about it. So I think it it reads really well. Um, I have a quick question, but I'll wait till somebody else to jump in before asking, or whenever you're ready, and we'll see it. Why don't you go ahead? Uh, I was wondering if we need to put in any sort of call to action uh, in in the letter. Like, do, do we want to propose any next steps or anything like that, or do we want to leave it to sort of Heather and Heather and team to to do that? Good question. So this is Alexander. What I can tell you is that so the letter pretty much uh, the letter that you know uh, Dr. Francis ended up drafting, and uh, you know it, it, essentially the call to action here is for them to develop that process. And uh, I think it was you know we we deemed that it would be more appropriate to sort of dictating uh, on although we do specify you know like the, the end result of that process which is to give Alameda Health System an opportunity to sit at the table I think we wanted to, to give that county the opportunity to so, sort of you know develop something that they can implement and I think it's safe to say that the county will be open to any feedback that we may have on the process that they develop uh, but, you know, if the co-applicant board deems appropriate, I think uh, you can certainly authorize or, you know, you, we can certainly have uh, Dr. Francis and Heather sort of do a follow-up uh, with the county to see where they are. And also, you know, perhaps we can even offer some type of support in helping them develop that. But I think, again, you know, I want the county to sort of to take initiative on doing that now that they're aware of the issue. Yeah, I like Alex Alexander's ideas about having um, Heather and Dr. Francis sort of offer to to provide support or you know, any any other subtle way that we can we can ensure that the issue keeps you know moving forward. But they are sort of they're taking the initiative to move it forward. But we still want to like make sure that we're sort of you know having them move in the right direction. <laughs> so. And I think in this letter also we're addressing it to the um, commission, 
right? Uh, so they themselves aren't necessarily going to be the ones putting together the, um, you know, whatever next steps is going to be. Um, so I think right now, I think from, I was seeing it as a, a way for asking their support, like making them, you know, aware that this was something that we were concerned about, um, what we were asking for and kind of having them come along with us in asking for that collaboration um, as well. Um, and I think, yeah, I agree. Having, um, you know, our leadership kind of, kind of um, follow up and kind of what the steps would be, would be great. So how, do we need to do anything, need to change the letter or it's just something that, you know, it's something at the, at, a, at another board meeting that we sort of empower Heather and, and Dr. Francis to to take the issue forward. Alexander, I guess it's a question for you. Yeah. So uh, technically under this meeting, you know, the CAP will authorize the dissemination. Uh, so once, you know, I think now we have a second. So unless there is another amendment to the letter, then I think, you know, uh, 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 the chair of the board, Lucia, can go ahead and proceed and send that letter via email or, you know, by mail. Uh, as far as the next question, which is, you know, does the CAP need to authorize Dr. Francis and Heather? Not necessarily because this sort of falls within the scope of their uh, duties, you know, to the healthcare for the homeless center. So they do have the authority to do that follow up. And again, you know, that's also authorized based on, on the fact that we initiated the initial request uh, based on what we thought would be an appropriate need for the organization. Great, thanks, Alexander. No problem. Yeah. Um, any questions about the letter? Any feedback? I think you addressed everything that was needed to address this general letter, and I think it was good. I agree. I think it was written very well, covering all the points that we talked about. Okay. Well, uh, I guess we can move forward. Um, sorry, I'm still not great at this, but do we move forward? Uh, just if everyone is in favor, and if everyone is in favor, you know, the motion carries. Okay. Is everyone in favor of um, approving this letter as is um, to be sent to the Alameda um, Health System Commission? Yes. Uh, yes. 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 Okay. Okay. Anyone against? Do you want a motion? Motion already. Yeah, so the motion was approved. Yeah, motion approved. All right. Okay. Thank you. Um, so we'll, we'll go ahead and send the letter. Um, and then do we, are we closing the session or is it just follow up on the closed session? Okay, it looks like I made an error um, when I edited the 
see how there's the report. I, I removed the whole closed session except for the report on action taken from our last um, meeting. So that's just a typographical error on my part. I apologize. Okay. So no more action, I mean, no, no more agenda items other than comments. Um, so we will move on. Um, do we have any public comment? None here. Um, and then uh, for our co-applicant board members, are, is there any comments? No, I don't have any at this time. Neither do I. No, I. I don't have any. Nothing here. I actually had a question for um, either Heather, or Dr. Francis. Um, kind of looking as we're looking at our data. Um, is there in the future? Is there a possibility to look at our data um, um, uh, split up like the demographics, kind of a uh, by race? So we do have um, on next, I believe it's on next month's agenda, there are quite a few reports that we're due to give you um, based on our performance metrics from our subrecipient agreement. Um, these are not going to be at this point split up necessarily by um, any demographics. So the reports that we have, one of them is um, um, it's patient uh, patient risk, so it's patient risk and patient experience data. Those are the things that we're bringing back to you next month. Um, the patient experience data may be uh, divided because one of the things we talked about was using um, alternate characteristics to identify a population on patient experience. And so it might be that we're bringing back patient experience specifically from a, a specific subpopulation. But I haven't gotten that data yet to identify that. Um, but in general, when we have our data overall, um, you would like, would you like the mobile data to be divided up by demographics? Is that what you'd like to see? Because right now, the only data that we've really provided is, is usually around the services that we're providing via mobile. Yeah. I think I was just thinking in terms of, you know, if we're want to be more serious about addressing disparities, um, kind of knowing if there are, kind of having the data behind it is important, right? So if it's not something we're collecting now, kind of what do we do in the future to kind of have that information uh, to make more informed decisions um, whatever that looks like moving forward. So this guy can say our ambulatory wide um, quality measures are really tied to payment incentive programs for the, from the state. 
Um, only a few of those measures are required by the state to be stratified by race. Um, and in our meeting yesterday with ambulatory leaders, um, there was a commitment to stratify more of those measures by race. Um, so those will get to sort of quality questions. And as we do work that's intended to improve quality, um, you know, we're able to see where the improvement's happening, where the improvement's not happening. Um, so I'm looking forward to, you know, the, the ambulatory-wide measures being oriented in that direction, um, which will then allow us for the homeless-specific measures to do the same. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think that uh, we'll need to, um, you don't accidentally improve equity. Uh, you actually only do it intentionally pretty much. Um, and in fact, most of what's done that makes equity go in the wrong direction, that creates inequity is, um, is done unintentionally. Um, it's not that it's done intentionally to produce inequity in a lot of cases. It's just, oh, we unintentionally improve something. And there's actually good evidence that general quality improvement efforts tend to improve outcomes for people who already have better outcomes. So if you just sort of indiscriminately engage in quality improvement, you can imagine it's like, Let's, um, let's call people to get them to do something. If, that, if that's your improvement intervention, right? And so, okay, who, who are you gonna be able to improve something for? Well, the people you can reach by phone. So already inside of your intervention, you've layered an element of inequity unless you've really thought about that at the front end. Um, so I, I'm, I think as we get more of the quality measures um, stratified by data, we'll be able to act on them. And I think our challenge will be figuring out where to focus um, and where it's strategic for us to focus as a system. Um, and I think um, one of my pushes sort of in the conversation, um, you know, with you all today and in general is to focus on access to primary care. And what does that really mean? Is it meaningful that people are connected to care, which populations are, which populations aren't? Because I think many of the downstream measures from that flow from the quality of the relationship with primary care providers. And so that's the place where I'm looking forward to us getting, getting to see if you're, if you're assigned, but unseen, if your insurer says you're assigned to Alameda health system as a provide, you know, as your provider, but you haven't been seen yet. Is that more common for African-Americans? Is that more common for um, people who are gender non-conforming? Is that more common for people who live in certain zip codes? I think those kinds of data are the ones that I'm, most oriented toward getting stratified. I think it's helpful to see everything, but we we will risk being drowned in some of that data unless um, as, a, as a group we can figure out what's really important to us to focus on in terms of the disparities. Thank you. Okay, um, any last comments? Um, okay, great. Um, so then we will go ahead and adjourn our meeting um, at 6.31 p.m. Thank you so much, everyone. Hope you have a wonderful evening. And we will see you, you next Thank month. you, Lucia. Yeah. Thank you, Lucia. Thank you, Lucia. You guys have a great evening.